Jennifer Nesline, formerly a co-editor and co-founder of Brainchild, and currently editor and founder of Full Grown People, joined me on episode 41 of the Hashtag CNF podcast to talk about the art of editing. Her essays have appeared in Creative Nonfiction, The Brevity Blog, Virginia Quarterly, and The Nervous Breakdown. She's also the author of Practically Perfect in Every Way. Why wait any longer? Here's Jennifer Nesline. <laughs> ah, so um, when, when people ask you what you do, uh, what do you tell them? Um, it depends who they are, but I'll probably <laughs> say I am an editor and a writer. So, and I spend most of my time editing, so that's that's kind of why why I go in that order. Right, right. And which do you prefer? I don't know. I feel like they use different parts of my brain. I only write when I have something that I really need to figure out. And luckily, I have a fairly charmed life. So there's not a lot of stuff I've had to figure out for myself. Yeah, I like editing. I like being, that feels more, uh, you know, like I'm part of a community where writing can feel pretty isolating. Yeah, because the, the editing process, it, if, especially if, you, if the writer and the editor are both enrolled in the same journey so to speak it's a much more collaborative experience and like you do have more of that um a little back and forth more of a partnership whereas you're saying like yeah the writing can be oftentimes feel like you're just shouting into a canyon and no one's listening and it's yeah it is very isolating yeah yeah that's i always feel like it's a collaboration with writers and editors sort of in service to the reader and so i feel like my job is to get the essay to its as close as possible to its platonic ideal. Mm. And when you receive work uh, for, you know, full, full grown people or when you were working with brainchild, um, how close is that initial submission to what eventually gets published? It depends on the writer. Um, I edit very carefully so sometimes all it needs is a good line edit. Um, sometimes there is more developmental editing that goes on. Um, though I think I'm really at a point now where I'm not getting the submissions that need the developmental stuff as much. Right. So you're getting, as you've sort of grown, sort of grown your, but the net which that you're able to sort of capture some of these people there at least you're you're getting people that have maybe a more fleshed out idea right and more experience mhm though so i have been blown away you know by getting something and and then i find out later, later that this is the writer's first publication i'm like get out no way <laughs> yeah what's what's that like for you to just see something that's uh, that uh um there's so much sort of uh, inexperience behind it, but comes across as very seasoned. It's great. And it it feels like to me that this writer has been toiling away, but just has recently discovered the confidence mm. 
to put themselves out there. Yeah, like at, when I've spoken with uh, the novelist Jonathan Evison, this is a few years ago, um, and he's had a good run of some best-selling novels uh, like The Revised Fundamentals of Caregiving and West of Here. Um, and uh, you know, All About Lulu was his quote-unquote debut novel. And when I was talking to him about that. He's like, well, you know, I wrote nine novels before that that are buried in my backyard that I won't let anybody see. Uh, but yet the tenth one is the quote unquote debut. So like you right. get, you get a sense that yeah you, you maybe somebody is putting out maybe a first publication, but might they've been toy like you said they've been really honing honing a voice and honing a craft for years. Oh yeah, definitely. So like backing up a little bit, uh, talk a little bit about uh, Brainchild and founding founding that and the machinations and the mechanics of wanting to bring something of that nature of your own vision to the page or to the, or to the web. It was a print magazine when I founded it with my um, friend, Stephanie Wilkinson, um, who was a much more experienced journalist and editor than I was at the time. And I, oh, and, and, and what year is that, just to put it on the timeline? Uh, we came up with the idea in 1999, and our first issue came out in March of 2000. Okay. So, uh, yeah, we – I had had experience um, – my only experience, actually, was working at a local news weekly um, called Seville Weekly, and I – was lucky enough it was going through some big growth at the time so I started out as an intern um, and when I left I I was the managing editor and it was just pure luck that I was with them at this time of extreme growth um, so I got to know all of the ins and outs of like back then you know we the layout we'd, we'd have called the mechanicals there were uh, actual paper paste ups and I, you know, all the ins and outs of it. I, I got to learn, um, Stephanie at that time was in grad school and she was writing the book column for Seville weekly. And that's how we met. Um, and so we both had experience. Um, but it was really just sort of like, Hey, let's, let's put on a show. Mm. So we bought a book literally called, how to run a successful um, magazine or newsletter. Huh. And it was a very good book, actually. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and we just figured it out. And people are generous with their advice, I, I say, other publishers and editors, especially on that level. Oh, yeah. So what, what itch was that scratching that you guys wanted to start that? Well, at the time, there weren't a lot of publications geared, literary publications geared um, about motherhood. And we wanted to take on this, you know, this stupid idea that that motherhood is just, you know, the soft-focused thing and all mothers want, you know, is a kicky new hairdo or... Hmm you know, tips from experts who don't actually know your child. We wanted the voice of mothers 
in the publication. Um, Salon at the time had a column called Mothers Who Think, and they were successful, but they, you know, they could only publish so many things. And so um, we refined our vision instead of just essays. We had essays and features, um, some news, a debate column, a humor column, fiction. And we had a good long run of it for, when did we sell it? Uh, 2012, I think. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, thir- thir- well, 13 years from idea to, to selling. Yeah. Right. And, you know, at that time, my baby, when we started it, was when we came up with the idea, was five months old. Hmm. And he was a teenager when we sold it. So hmm. um, I think I, I grew out of it both personally and professionally. Um, but it was weird. Because it was like selling my identity. Right. You know, because I had wrapped up both my personal stuff and my professional stuff in this one one big blob. Yeah. Yeah, like talk about a really just like rich time of your life just as as a person and, and a mother. And then it's also like just almost seamlessly braided into this into this. Uh, uh, passion project that turned into something that was so much more, and then, uh, yeah, just to see it, to see it end, end like that. What what was the, what was the last you know, year or two, and then maybe like when it finally ended? What was that like for you? In some ways, I don't know. I I really really love the community um, surrounding Brainchild, and I knew I was going to miss that. Um, and I did miss it. I, I sort of, after, after we sold it, I tried to do freelancing for about a year. And, you know, just sort of felt like I was flailing a little bit, <laughs> you know? Yeah, you're, um, yeah, you're not alone there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I, um, there was a time in my life where I noticed a lot of people around me were going through different different sort of transitions. So my, my sister's son was off to college. So she and her husband were trying to figure out, you know, what the next chapter of their lives were. Some of my friends were switching careers. Some of them were getting divorced or remarried or just entering the, the dating scene after not being in it for a long time. Um, some people were dealing with aging parents. And so as my, as I tend to do, I took my personal crisis and made a publication out of it. Mm-hmm. And that's how full grown people happened. At how much time between the selling of brainchild until you start full grown people? About a year. About a year. So I oh yeah, talk about a, a period of, you know, like you said, transition, but like a total upheaval in a lot of sense. Like talk, uh, just so much change going on around you and everyone you knew. Yeah. And, you know, it, I think it tends to happen um, sort of in the thick of life, but it can happen anytime. So what uh, what was the moment that you knew you wanted to be like an editor or a writer? 
I wanted to be a writer since I could read and I wanted to make the magic happen. Mm. Um, because I think, you know, before I was an editor or a writer, I've, I'm always a reader first. But then I wanted to be an editor when I realized how difficult it is to make money <laughs> as a writer. Right, right. Um, and now I'm realizing how difficult it is to make it as an editor as well. But that's a different story. <laughs> um, so, yeah. And I, I didn't – I think as I've gotten older, I've um, embraced more of the community thing. I'm, I'm still fine with – sort of being alone I think but I like being part of something bigger and I like being a champion of other writers because I feel like you know it comes around and you never know who's I don't know it's a good feeling that's yeah. all and with um you know that you know that need or the the want to to kind of be to be alone and to to sort of recede and then and then sort of like commute back in. Is that what being an editor of the, of, of something like full grown people is like that you can, you can like commute back and forth between the, the two poles and the two ideals that you're talking about. Yeah, I think it is. Um, it's yeah, it's, you know, one toe in, in each world. And that's nice. So, I remember when I was writing my book, I was at the end of it, and my husband and son were down in Florida visiting my in-laws, and I was going through my editor's, you know, last notes on it, and, you know, the book was a memoir, and so I had to call my neighbor over. I'm like, I'm sick of thinking about me, editing about me, writing about me. Come over and tell me something about yourself, because I'm, I'm done with me for now. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh that's what's kind of that's what's kind of great about writing nonfiction whether it's some more journalistic or even even some form of essay is that if you're sick of yourself or if you're someone who subscribes to writer's block which I'm not you just go out and talk to people and yeah. you, there are so many there are just endless stories that jeez look at this american life and the run they've been on for 20 years or more and oh yeah the stories are are out there you just have to you have to just tune your antenna to a different frequency and open up your curiosity and there's no shortage of stories yeah and i'm a big fan of doing a lot of research i love the kind of work that combines research and personal yeah yeah i just spoke with um philip gerard who just had a his book came out the art of creative research and it's such a great toolbox of how to how to curate information from all different corners of of the world archives internet and just you know put a vest on with camera and recorder notebook pencils all the you know it just it's got this real gritty feel you're just going to go out there and just comb the world for information and then come back and try to make sense of it it's just like such a cool book and it makes you it just fires you up to get out there and do the thing Oh, I'll have to check that out. Yeah, it's a good one. I uh, I spoke with him. He's episode thirty-eight. 
too. So there's a, we had a long conversation about research and all that. I think you'd probably dig it, it's, seeing as you like that the nature of going out into the world, doing that research, but also braiding it with something personal. Oh yeah, yeah. I think you'd probably dig it. And uh, when you were when you were little, and you always wanted to be a writer, you said you were a reader first. Uh, so what were some of those formative books for you that uh, made you want to do the thing? that was inspiring you as a, as a girl and young woman? Well, I couldn't get enough of Nancy Drew. And I'm mm-hmm. sure you've heard this from all sorts of writers who are women. Mm-hmm. Um, and Judy Bloom. I think, I think knowing that her, just her voice, I think, captivated me. Um, you know, the tales of a fourth grade nothing and super fudge. Um, I love stuff that is funny, you know, funny. I love yeah. funny. Yeah, that um, comes across in your writing, too. You have, like, a real distinctive voice that te- definitely, you're, you can tell you're having fun. Yeah, I mean, that's, it, it, yeah, it's something that I think is, why do it if not, you know? Right. Well, <laughs> I contradict myself. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, so so Judy Bloom or were, were there any other uh, other titles as you as you like as you as you were getting older how did your tastes change as you were maturing? Well, I remember in high school um you know, most of high school you have to do the canon. So you get the Scarlet Letter and Shakespeare and all that um stuff and then my my senior year my teacher, um, Ruth Kuyper, had us read The Color Purple. And I remember being blown away, like, we're allowed to write these kind of books? Mm. And that's another, you know, great voice-driven book with a great story. So, yeah, that, that was very eye-opening for me. I would say, like, Catcher in the Rye was like that for me. Uh, when I was 16 and read that, that was the first book that was assigned to me like in high school that I actually read because the only way to get me to not, if you want to be not to read something, just assign it to me. And that was, (laughs) that was the perfect way. Uh, But I picked that up and like from the opening words, it's like, Oh man, like that, there are just some books like that, that speak to you and all and show you another way. It's really, it's really cool. I'm always grateful to Miss Kuiper for that. Yeah. And was she someone who, uh, not only she turned you on to a, a different way of writing or a different way of reading, did she was she someone who also saw something in your writing and helped encourage you that way? She did. Yeah, she's um, and she continues to be a lovely woman. I'm friends with her on Facebook, and mm-hmm. um, but you know my my parents, my mother especially, has always been a huge supporter of of mine and giving me confidence and you know i'm i'm just lucky to be as confident as i am yeah how important are uh like are those kind of mentors to you like in those dark moments and there are several when you're sort of in the cave um what what is what has it been like to have these kind of people in your corner uh, like in the boxer's corner, you know, massaging your shoulders and giving you the towel to wipe off your brow before sending you back out into the ring. 
Um, it's been wonderful. You know, I feel like I have two sorts of of uh, of cheerleaders. I guess I could say mm-hmm. one is um, you know my my mom, my sisters. They're they're always there, sort of unconditionally loving what I do. Um, but I think I've as I've gotten older, I've also had people like my uh, former business partner. And friend Stephanie, who would find a way to say, "Okay, you got to start this over. This isn't working." Mm. And I feel like that's important too, because you don't want to put something out into the world that you're going to be later embarrassed of. And so she's still, in some ways, my barometer. Like, what would Stephanie think of this? Is she, in a lot of ways, your ideal reader? Yeah, I would say so. And when you when you embark on a project, um, I kind of have like an ideal reader of mine too, and it's just like it's just a buddy of mine from from high school. And when I write, I'm like, all right, is Pete gonna? What's he gonna think of this? And I kind of just write to basically what I find entertaining, what entertains me, and keeps me keeps me going because if I can't stay interested in the writing, there's no way in hell a reader is. Right. And, uh, and it, like, if I can, if I can sell him on it, cause he's also the smartest person I know. And, um, so it's, I, I always have that in mind. So do you just have that one, like Stephanie in mind, usually when you're crafting something and you're like, all right, if I'm, if I can sell her, I know I'm, I know I'm going down the right road here. Right. She's like my quality control in a way mm, too. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, like in The Office. She's your Creed Bratton. <laughs> I don't know if you watch The Office at all. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I was thinking my husband is actually a quality assurance engineer. So I feel like he's sort of like the moral center of his company. Okay. And, <laughs> and so Stephanie is that in my head, at least. That's great. That's, uh, and, when um what what makes what makes for a good editor well you probably know this hattie fletcher of creative nonfiction is a fabulous editor and i wish she could edit everything i write mm-hmm. um i think a good editor is somebody who will tell you um when something is not working, um, I think editors who are afraid to talk to writers are not maybe, maybe at the beginning of their careers. I think if you hold, I don't know. I I feel like a writer, it it should be a collaborator really, you know, somebody who doesn't want to change your voice, but who can also point out, okay, sometimes this tripped me up or, you know, you're taking this whole section is taking me in a weird direction. And I think what makes a, a good editor on th- is it, it, despite those little, those hiccups in the, in the prose, they still see ultimately what has merit and value buried and nestled inside that. So they don't just judge it on the work that needs to be done. They're like, Oh, there's something, there's something good here but we just kind of have to mine it a bit. Right. I mean, I feel like 
a good editor makes you feel like they're your advocate. How long did it did it take you uh, a a while? Like, how did you forge that advocacy and that balance in the collaborative? process as as an editor and someone who was a writer and then and now someone who's like primarily editor if i and uh, like how did you come to that balance yourself um i watched stephanie a lot mm. and i just because every draft would go through me first and then her and she'd get everything that i didn't get and after a while i learned how to anticipate like you know why am I, why am I being so ginger with this? And it's not doing anybody any favors, especially the reader, who's the most important part of this whole shebang. So I, I you know, it's just experience. I think working with writers too, good writers, has made me both a better editor and a better writer. Because when you're editing, you read closely, and you can, you can sort of pull apart why something works and then you can apply that to your own writing you can you know you can figure it out for it 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 makes it more apparent when you when you see something that is almost working and you could you have the tools to massage it into place so it clicks what is your your process like when you get a piece of writing that you've you've accepted and you're like all right uh, now I'm gonna like dive in and start. Like, do you read it through? Like, do you go through fast and then, and then you go through like in first gear, just like almost line by line. Like, what or yeah, what is that process like for you? As you're, you know, how long does that take? And just what does that look like for you? Well, it depends on the last time I read it. Sometimes I'll, um, you know, get an essay and run it the next week, and sometimes it'll sit in my files for a month or two. So, you know, it just depends. Last time I read it, um, I want to familiarize myself with it. So, you know, just to get down the foreshadowing or whatever that's going on. Yeah. And then I, I go through very slowly. And then, uh, once I do that once I'll go through again, um, just to make sure all my edits match each other in a way. And then I send it off to the, to the writer and I say, please don't lose track changes because it drives me insane. Um, but you know, (laughs) and put your feedback in and then we'll come up with a, you know, a solid draft and I'll put a a preview on the site for them to see. Yeah. I, I feel like it's probably the standard way of most editors work. Yeah. I wonder, I'm not a, a particularly strong, editor or get you know, I uh, if I'm getting notes for for people some somebody wants <coughs> to read something and sometimes you, you almost feel like you're what's the right way to do it like is should you be reading it really slow or what what's worth picking out and like how do you how do you forge like really good quality feedback in that sense that's valuable to the writer but uh, sometimes you you wonder if you're you know missing the mark or whatever if they even you know uh, sort of care what you're what you're saying like if it makes sense to you because you're kind of using your own filter of what you think sounds good and then you know they they kind of look at you like oh well 
thanks, but no thanks. Or <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, well, I think feedback is a different thing because, you know, it, if you're going through for a friend, it feels nitpicky to say, like, you know, make this hyphen into an M dash, mm. <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. <laughs> um, but, but when you edit, you know, it's a different story. Yeah. What's the, is there, can you articulate what the difference is in your mind between say like editing and feedback and how they uh, may be a side of the same coin or maybe they're completely different? I don't, how would you define the two? Well, I think the stakes are higher in editing Mm -hmm. than in giving feedback because when whatever I put up, my name is on the, on the site. My name is on the publication. Um, and if it looks sloppy, that's on me and it's also on the writer. So we both have stake in this coming out as best as it possibly can for feedback your stakes, you're doing a favor, basically. So the stakes aren't as high. You're looking out for your friend, but if if something comes across as screwy, then it's on them. Right. You have not, you know. Right. As a as an editor and as someone who reads untold uh, hundreds of submissions a year, um, what's what's your biggest turn off as as a as a reader preliminarily and then another set of turnoffs like say once you're working with the writer what's a what's something else that just really gets in your craw well my biggest turnoff is sending me work that has absolutely nothing to do with the website um that proving that no one's read the work right i mean it's it's a waste of my time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and that's pre- and that's pretty obvious to you right away, I imagine. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, yeah, I mean, it's called full grown people. So you know, if you send me a story about your childhood exclusively, then it, you don't you haven't read it. You haven't mm-hmm. read the site, right? Um, Working with the writer, I guess I don't have any huge pet peeves because I think, as far as I can remember, I've always been able to work stuff out. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, that's that's really... Yeah. Cause... I don't know. I consider myself a reasonable person. I think most writers are. Yeah. Uh, and the ones that aren't are just... They're probably inexperienced. Right. Uh, so I don't know. I mean, I, I always think if if worse comes to worse, we just part ways and it will have wasted my time, but it it's not brain surgery, you know? It's, right. Yeah, because uh, in, um, in the piece that you wrote for uh, Jane Friedman's website, like I've got a – got a paragraph here i'll just i'll just read and then i'll um i'll just ask you about it 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 said um this is under under the the little subhead uh i try to be easy to work with and and you're right it's pretty much cliche at this point that it's only the writers most in need of a good edit who are the most resistant to one but it's true 
an actual reply I received after emailing a round of edits. It says, quote, sigh. Sometimes I wish I were a sculptor so when I finish my masterpiece, it's done, end quote. Yes, and sometimes I wish I were in a time machine so I could snatch that acceptance letter back, but that's neither here nor there. And so that seems like an, an element where someone was kind of difficult and, uh, and not resistant to, to what you were trying to do, which is trying to improve the work. So like, that's got to just really like, twist in your side. Yeah, I mean, that was, that was way back. Um, yeah, it was like four years ago, Brainchild. Point, I think. Okay. Well, when I was with Brainchild, I wrote this. Um, I wrote that, I think, right around the time we sold or no, right after we sold Brainchild. Yep. But um, yeah, that it did. It irritated me, but it. But it's one of those things, you know. You can just sort of. After a while, it becomes like, all right, well, you're being difficult. I'm not. You bring the drama. That's on you. <laughs> you know. Yeah. There's the pull quote. You bring the drama. It's on you. <laughs> <laughs> So what is the most satisfying part for you about the editing process? Um, I think knowing that somebody out there is going to really need this essay um, that they're reading. Something, something about it will click for them. And that's really, really gratifying. And what's a bigger, what's more satisfying for you in a sense? Like, is it like a, a big editing win or a big writing win? And you can define the win in any way you want, but what feels better for you? Well, obviously, it feels better for my ego uh, for the writing win. Mm -hmm. um, I, th I think I can look at, you know, my pieces of writing individually. Um, but with my editing, I have to look over sort of the course of my career. So it's sort of a short-term gain versus long-term. And, you know, so far, I don't think my writing career is maybe, I'm not sure that it's greater than the sum of its parts, um, but I think my editing is. Mm. When you were... as sort of forging, you know, early stages of your vocation or, um, are looking, looking back on that now, are, are you surprised that you're on, on the spectrum or the, the scale of writing and editing that it's tipped more in favor of the editing? Is that something that caught you off guard? Yeah, it has actually. Um, I've made peace with it now, but it, I think every writer has this, secret dream that they're going to be the special one that mm -hmm. they're going to be plucked, you know, by somebody important and become the darling of everyone. Well, that, that really happens. And I'm okay with that. Um, and I think part of it is the age I am. I'm, I'm Gen X. And I think my generation has learned that we can't, we can't rely on, on other people. And I think having sort of grown up with working class ethics, I, I think that also plays into it is that nobody owes you anything and nobody's going to do you any favors. 
And so I feel good about having made my own way. And I'm not saying I did it all by myself, but I, I think I've done it mostly on my terms. How long did it take you to come to peace with, you know, that, 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 that idea that you had of being like this, you know, one of the, those anointed type writers to just to being a, a working editor and writer, which doesn't sound as glamorous, but it's still, it's still grounded in the craft you love. So how long did it take you to come to that piece? Um, I would say probably after, after my book came out, um, mm-hmm. I wrote a book that was published by Putnam in 2007. I originally thought it was going to be a big deal. Plans changed at the publishing house. It it did, you know, it was it was well liked. I'm not going to say critically acclaimed, but it was well liked. The sales weren't that spectacular. I was disappointed for a while, and I thought, I still have everything else in my life is fine too. I still can write. I don't know. It, and then I realized. I was relying on somebody else to make me, give me this platform when I can do it myself. And I, when I do it myself, I do it better. Mm. When you look back, say, 20 years ago, who's the, who's the Jennifer Nestline you see? I don't know. Somebody who... Who has no idea what's in store for her, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, is there anything, is there any advice you would give to that 25 year old? No, I, I think everything that happened, you know, no, I, I guess I wouldn't. When you were say like 25, 25, even 30, what did, what did success look like? to you as a writer or editor then versus versus now like what a successful life and career in the in this vocation looks like now you know that changes there's uh, over the years so what did that look like early and what does that look like now when we started brainchild um we didn't pay ourselves at first so it was very important for me to start making money from this um the world was a different place then. People had magazine launch parties, <laughs> you know, mm. big extravagant ones where they where they have party planners. Um, so it seemed feasible at the time that a magazine could provide a good living. I think I've had to change my expectations as the industry has changed. Um, but we did. We made a we made decent livings. For for many years, Steph and I did, and we could pay employees. Print, I would not go into print now, um, and that's why I didn't. So I, I think it's not as much tied to money in my head now, but I say that with the privilege of not having to worry about money. And that's, so it's sort of a, it's sort of a false thing to say like, Oh, well money has nothing to do with success. Well, that's fine. If your husband works 
and makes enough money to to get all the bills and health insurance. Uh, you know, it's mm-hmm. um, so I'm I'm well aware of the privilege that I have, um, and I like to think by my editing work that I'm using it for good by publishing voices that might not otherwise um, be published. So I don't know. And so in uh, in changing gears just a little bit uh when when you're in the throes of writing a essay or even uh even if you're just like you're neck deep in and uh trying to get a you know an issue out uh what does your sort of your daily routine look like from when you right from when you wake up to how you start putting things in motion to win the day I am not a morning person mm-hmm. at all. Um, I am sitting here in my bathrobe. Um, so, you know, I do my best work in the late afternoon. Um, and then when I get going, I'll just keep going until I start to do damage to the work. Um, and then I'll pick it up the next day. Mm. So, I, I sort of work in bursts. I used to do this thing where, you know, what, like you're supposed to do, you know, button chair, blah, blah, blah. Um, but I, I, I've been writing long enough that I have faith that if, if I'm not feeling it, it's going to come to me at some point. I'm just, I feel like there's somewhere in my head that is always, if, if I'm working on an essay, even if I'm not consciously thinking about it, I'm, I'm still, um, still trying to figure it out. I, you know, I do a lot of good thinking in the shower. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I get out, I'll like come down and be like, okay, this has to be the structure and blah, blah, blah. blah. Um, so yeah. And then I'll, I'll finish a draft. I'll sit on it for a little bit, um, to make sure I'm, you know, my love for it sort of cools down and I can look at it with more objective eyes and um, yeah, I try and find a home for it. Do you incorporate, do you go for long walks at all and use that kind of a meditative practice um, to unplug, but you know, you know, the computer is still working in the background doing those kind of activities. Um, Not long walks so much as sometimes I will, sit down and just sort of stare off into space and it, and that's the thing that, you know, <laughs> you'd think they'd know by now, but my husband and son are like, are you all right? Mm-hmm. You okay? Like, I'm thinking I'm writing. Yeah. 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 You open up one of your, uh, one of your recent essays with that little, that little anecdote. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's the, it's the one that you referenced the, the joy of writing and that you look like you're, you're like you're just pensive and uh, you to the outside you might actually look angry or upset but no yeah. i'm in, you're in i'm in the process right now yeah you you used an interesting word uh like to do like doing damage to the work getting some damage done and that's such a it's such a as you're generating you're also kind of breaking something down too and uh did uh what what is what does that look like to you when you when you reach that degree of flow, which is hard to get, but once you're there, it's like running downhill. So like when you're in that damage 
damage zone? What what's that like for you? Well, actually, I was I was meaning damage like I was literally damaging it like by <laughs> by you know if every other sentence is add quality here, that means you know it's time to stop. Mm-hmm. But yeah, when I when I really get into it, um, yeah, it you know you can look up and not realize the time time passed. Um, but I can only really sustain that for me for probably three hours um, b- before it's it starts I get too drained. So um, yeah, but it's a great feeling. It's mm. I, I imagine you know it's it's akin to a runner's high, even though there's no actual you know chemicals involved. Yeah. Is um what a what uh, kind of a two part? I'll ask the first part. Like what what is some bad advice about writing you hear bandied about? I don't know if there is bad advice, but there's definitely advice that just isn't going to work for you. Mm-hmm. Like I've never been a butt in the seat writer. Um, I'm not sure because I'm I don't know how other people do it, so I'm not sure. What is bad advice? I I don't understand the anger about um, adverbs. <laughs> That's something that doesn't make sense to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think, yeah. I know advice that doesn't work for me is, you know, write every day, write early in the morning, to that to that point you're making right now, um, I just heard a, a great interview uh, with Cheryl Strayed, where she's a, she calls herself a binge writer. Like she she's not the person who writes every day, and she's not ashamed of that either. Like sometimes there's if you're not generating words like every single day, you like you're shamed into not being a writer. And she's like, well, I. I you know, I, I sometimes I'll go like a whole week without doing, but then I'll write for ten hours in one day or something, or you know, in that sense. And, right. Am I no less a writer because I sort of I go through these binges and and so forth? And so I think you're you're speaking right to that point that there it comes in. There are many different shades of what it means to to write and to generate work, and so you just have to come to your own acceptance and understanding of who you are as an artist to you know to to see what works for you right and I think there are people who are um, who have to do much more revision than I generally do on my own work um, because they're thinking about word count whereas I'm thinking about you know, I think it might be the editor and me coming out a bit, but I'll write a paragraph and then I'll work on that paragraph. And so it's, by the time I get to the end, the top is really pretty polished. And so that's, that's just how I work. But I understand people who, you know, write 2000 words a day. They got their 2000 in when it's all done, they'll go through and and get in revision mode, but I'm in the write and revise mode all the time. That's, uh, that's, do you find as someone who's such a strong editor and writer that it's tough to divorce the two? Like, do you get stuck sometimes writing because the editor software is running at the same time? Yeah, a little bit. Um, 
I can let go of it. And once I get into the flow, but there's still always a part of me that thinks I can't just let this be a poor quality sentence and move on to the next sentence. I have to like, you know, stick the landing on this. Mm -hmm. That's uh, yeah, that's, that's tough. Like, that's a, uh, that's a real, that's a real fine, fine balance. Cause sometimes you, know, you there, you know, people who call themselves perfectionists have this problem. Like something you got to get beyond that to just like, to get the work down and get it, get it done and then work back and try to try to hone it. So it's like, you're, that's uh, that's gotta be a challenge sometimes, like almost like editing as you're writing. Cause that's uh, I suspect that you must, that must be a real tough balance. Yeah. It's a, it is a balance because I know I will have to go back and revise somehow. And it doesn't have to be a perfect sentence, but it has to, but it has to be perfect enough that I can move on to the next one um, because if the rhythm, you know, if writing is so much of writing is rhythm. And so if the rhythm doesn't make sense, then, it, you know, it just starts falling apart. So. Right. It's kind of like mu music in that sense. Like if you're just you know, noodling on the guitar and you're trying to play a certain, like if, if, the first measure doesn't sound good. You can't move on to the next one because there's no connective tissue. Right. Right. Yeah. Where Where are you these days with full grown people? Like, what's the What's the internal feeling with what you're doing at at this latest at this latest juncture and this and the the great work you're doing there? Like, how does that feel right now? Where are you at? Well. It, literally where I'm at is I have to jump back in because I've been out of town and then in town, um, my grandma died. And so I've been, when she was still alive, I was going up to hospice, um, to see her. And then when she, after she died, you know, I come from a close knit family and so we were all comforting each other. And that's, um, so I've been out of full grown people for a little bit and I need to get back in. But I think, um, just going forward, I'm I'm excited about the stuff I have in the hopper already, and I'm looking forward to reading more submissions. Um, I I guess one thing that I've been I've been thinking about lot a lot lately is um, inclusivity in work, um, and I'm pleased to say that I think that I've that full grown people is pretty inclusive um, in terms of race and ability and orientation and uh, class. So I'm, that's something I'm very proud of. And, it, and if, I, Oh, go on. Oh no. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, Ellie, if people wanted to want to support and submit to full grown people, like what is, what can, give those writers say a, a leg up if they want to be published under under your banner the quality of writing is always something i'm looking at but i think um i was on a i was supposed to be on a panel recently um at awp with um the panel was called what writers of color want white editors to know <laughs> and in preparation for this um me and my fellow panelists um, 
did a lot of, you know, research and email conversations. Um, and one of the things I took away from it is that if you look at a publication, if you look at, say, maybe a bigger publication than mine, you look at the masthead, and you don't see any people, say you see all white people, um, think, well, is this publication truly looking for my work? So it was it was a very instructive and wonderful experience to be a part of. And um, I don't know, I just made a greater effort to to be more inclusive because, you know, writing essays, that's sometimes you're like sending your tenderest work out to a stranger, right? Mm-hmm. And if you think they're going to just reject it or treat it as a token, um, why would you send it there to begin with? That's, I don't know, that's, that's sort of a submission of, well... Not submission, sub hyphen mission yeah. of <laughs> of uh, full grown people these days. That's great. All right, and and lastly, Jennifer, where can people find you online and find you if they want to familiarize your familiarize themselves more with your work? Um, JenniferNestline dot com. You can follow me on Facebook. I have a Twitter account, but I'm a terrible tweeter, so. Um, you know, you're not going to learn anything there. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and if you want to sign up for full grown people, I write little intros for every essay that comes out. Um, and so if you like my writing, it's a little bit of it. If you don't like my writing, you could just sort of slowly inoculate yourself against me by mm-hmm. receiving these emails. Fantastic. Well, Jennifer, thank you so much for carving out some time of your morning and, uh, and talking shop here. This is a lot of fun for me. And, uh, oh, me too. Yeah. So th- thanks. Thanks so much. And, um, yeah, we'll, we'll be in touch for sure. Okay. Thanks, Brandon. You got it. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Bye.